Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, thank you for joining our Good Friday Liturgy. I wanted to share with you a brief reflection on the cross. Uh, Being Good Friday, we focus on what Jesus has done for us. We remember his death. We explore its mystery and its meaning. As you know, the cross is central Uh, to the gospel. It is central to our faith. And as I said, it's multifaceted and there's lots that we could say about it. But one aspect, and a central aspect of the cross, which I'd like for us to reflect on, is this idea of Jesus being a scapegoat. I've entitled this reflection, The Last Scapegoat. What is a scapegoat? Scapegoating is when we place blame on an innocent victim for our sins. We seek to alleviate a problem, to bring peace by scapegoating someone. We do this to avoid taking responsibility. Uh, We do this to deal with our own contributions to the problem or without having to deal with our own contributions to the problem in an effort to create a quick fix and often getting solidarity and unity among a group of people in the process. There is no quicker way to bring unity among a divided people than to have a common enemy or to create a scapegoat. The idea of the scapegoat actually comes from the Bible. If you look at the book of Leviticus, particularly Leviticus chapter 16, we read there about the Day of Atonement. This would have been a very important chapter for Jews who revered the scriptures and the practices of Judaism because in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, we read how the high priest offers up sacrifices to make the people of God clean in his eyes, to uh, confess for the sake of forgiveness the sins of the people. There were three sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement. One was a bull, and the other two were young goats. And again, these were offered to make them clean before God for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I should say here that uh, this is not what God ultimately wants. Uh, as we will later see in Jesus and the New Testament makes clear that God does not desire sacrifices. He desires mercy. But as God is an accommodating God, he meets Israel where they are in the ancient Near Eastern world in, in a system that they understand, and he uses it. He uses it until we get to Jesus, as we'll see today. So three sacrifices, a bull and two young goats. One goat is sacrificed and the other is cast out of the community. Look at Leviticus 16 verse 10. It says, but the goat chosen by lot, 
So they would like roll some some die here and cast lots. The the goat chosen by the, by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now the symbol of the symbolism of this is very powerful actually. Think about this. The high priest would place his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the nation aloud, thus transferring their sins onto this animal. The goat would then be sent into the desert. And as I said, this symbolized that their sins were being taken away. The scapegoat was usually led to a rocky, barren place Uh, out in the desert. Uh, This would ensure that the animal would die and not return back to the camp, not return back to the community. Once expelled, you don't want the scapegoat coming back. I mean, that's like a, a, a bad sign. That's a bad omen if the scapegoat returns. Remember that. There are allusions to the scapegoat in Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. You, you'll recall, especially this time of year, when we read from Isaiah 53, this is a messianic passage. It's known as the suffering servant passage. I mean, if you were just to read that passage, you would think that this was written specifically about Jesus. But that's not what Isaiah had in mind when he wrote it. The suffering servant passage is about the sufferings of Israel. Yet Jesus uniquely fulfills this prophecy in his own sufferings. If you look at Isaiah 53, verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Now look at that, laid on him. This is an allusion to the scapegoat, our sins being placed on this individual, in this case, Isaiah, prophesying about Christ. Jesus is the scapegoat. Look what John the Baptist says uh, in John's gospel. John the Baptist had the same thing in mind when he said in John chapter 1 verse 29, look, so Jesus is coming into the water, into the Jordan River to be baptized, and John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you say, yeah, but John didn't say the goat of God here. He said the Lamb. Well, he still has in mind the scapegoat, but he's the Lamb of God as to signify his innocence. That's key. To signify Jesus' innocence, yet he will be this scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sins of the people of Israel, but all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, including our own. Later in John's Gospel, we read of the plot to kill Jesus. And listen to this. In John 11, beginning with verse 45 through 53, it reads this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you want to follow along in whatever Bible you have. John 11, verse 45. 
Many of the people who were there with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. This is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a short time before Holy Week when Jesus performs this miracle, his greatest miracle by far up to this point. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own, John tells us. As high priest at that time, he was led to the prophecy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. So in other words, Caiaphas is fulfilling prophecy that he isn't even aware is happening. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. In verse 53, so from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot to kill Jesus. Now you have to remember that Jerusalem is a tinderbox right now. I mean, the Romans have been ruling for about 100 years, and you're just on the verge here of, of riots. There have already been people who've claimed to be messiahs. Uh, they're, they're on the verge, the Romans are, of cracking down and actually destroying the temple, which will happen 40 years later. But they all know this, that the tensions are high. And here is Jesus, who is said to be the Messiah by some. They've been following his ministry, growing increasingly concerned that he's going to come to Jerusalem, that he's going to proclaim himself to be the Messiah, that he's going to revolt against Rome. Now, you and I, we know better. That's not what Jesus was about. That's not what kind of Messiah he's come to be. But even the religious leaders still don't get this, just like Jesus' disciples didn't get this. And so not only do they have reasons, these religious leaders, to be concerned about Jesus and how he challenges their authority, how he challenges their interpretations of Scripture, but Jesus has said some things in their mind that have been blasphemous. So they can get Jesus on that. Caiaphas, they plot, they come up with this plan to get Jesus. He is blasphemed. He's claimed the authority of God. He claims to be able to forgive people's sins. And this, this idea of being Messiah is a threat to Rome. It's a threat to Caesar. And so Caiaphas and the religious leaders will get Pilate, the Roman governor, of, uh, and the procurator of Judea, in on this plot. Not to sympathize with Pilate at all. Pilate is a ruthless uh, um, ruler who has no qualms with crucifying people on the spot. Uh, but yet he kind of gets sucked in and, and pulled into this. So notice, Jesus raises Lazarus, and then members of the Sanhedrin, they plot to kill Jesus. And Caiaphas thinks of a way to turn people against Jesus, to unite the people, make friends with their enemies and postpone Roman retribution upon Jerusalem, as I said, at least for 40 years, because Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. Caiaphas knows what he's doing. He knows how this works. He understands the power 
of scapegoating someone. And we still see and participate in this sort of thing today. Think about this with me. In our own country, we've done this with black folks. We've done this with Asian folks more recently, also during World War II with the Japanese. We've done this with immigrants. We're frustrated with our economy. We're frustrated with our own inability to find jobs, with the corruption and and so forth in government, and we're looking for someone to blame. It's this president, it's that president, it's this political party, it's that political party, it's this people group, it's, it's these immigrants. This is what we do. We've done it to the LGBTQ community. Uh, We did it to Muslims after 9-11. And as we recently saw in the insurrection at the Capitol building, I mean, people had set up a gallow to hang Mike Pence. All of this frustration, all of the fears, all of the guilt and the shame, whatever it is that's pent up, we want to take it out on a person or a group of people. Uh, We saw this in World War II when the Nazis exterminated the Jews, six million Jews. They they took all of their own frustrations and and the problems they had in Germany and the shame that Germany experienced in World War I, and they targeted the Jews and blamed the Jews. We've seen it expressed in every society, in every culture on the planet since the Garden of Eden, when, when Cain killed Abel. This has been happening. And we also see it in our personal lives. If you think very honestly about this, you can see how we do this in some form or another, sometimes almost every day, every week, every month. We want to scapegoat. We want to point the finger. We want to blame someone for our problems. We've certainly seen how this wreaks havoc on the church. It may bring about a temporary peace, a quick fix, as we said, a false sense of security. But in the end, just as the Jewish people saw in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it eventually will catch up with you. So think about this. The cross brings our sins. It brings our need to scapegoat, our desire for uh, retributive justice, this eye for eye, right? In our misplaced belief in redemptive violence, and it brings it into the light so that it can be exposed. This is what the cross does. It shows us that that doesn't work. The innocent Lamb of God, the Son of God, who did not deserve this wicked death, is scapegoated for their sins and for the sins of the world. So we should see the crucifixion of this innocent Lamb of God who has become our scapegoat, and we should be horrified that we have been and are a part of this sort of evil today. And we should repent. And the questions that I'm thinking, and I'm asking you to think with me, Will we deal with our own pain and our own problems by blaming someone else? Will we respond to our own guilt and shame and insecurities by taking it out on someone else? 
it, it is, again, like putting our sins, our frustration, our guilt, our blame, the confusion to not even want to sort through the process and find the truth. Let's just, let's just get that quick fix and alleviate the problem by quickly casting our sins, projecting our sins onto someone or a group of people and casting them out. Will we do that? Will we allow our fears, our confusion, and our anger motivate us to scapegoat and blame someone else or an entire group of people in order to achieve a false peace? And folks, we need to consider this. Satan, in Hebrew, hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, he is the one who blames. In the Gospel of John, you see this very clearly. Children of God are those who follow the way of the Lamb, even in the way of the cross. Children of the devil are those, like these religious leaders, who want to point the finger, blame, and scapegoat others. Therefore, the scriptures teach us that those who play the blame game are children of the devil. The children of God do not accuse, they do not blame, and they do not seek to scapegoat others. So the question is this, why did God allow himself in Christ to be scapegoated? You see, God didn't kill Jesus, we killed Jesus. We scapegoated Jesus and we continue to do this. We see it all in our world today. Why did God allow this? Why would he be in Christ laying himself down though he were innocent? And the answer, to expose our deepest, darkest sins. To forgive that sin and call us into a new way of being. Think about this with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 21. Listen as I read this wonderful passage by the Apostle Paul. He said, Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we would we could be made right with God through Christ. Look at that, folks. God didn't need to be reconciled to the world. The world needed to be reconciled 
to God. We need to stop. We need to see what our sin has done to God. He sends his son into the world and we crucify him. And yet Jesus becomes the last scapegoat. Jesus is the last scapegoat because he is the last sacrifice. He takes all of the blame on the cross. He takes it down into the grave. He shakes it off, leaving it there in Sheol, and then he is raised, being vindicated by God, declared innocent and exalted to the highest place. So get this picture. We send our sins into Jesus, the last scapegoat, and he is sent outside the city to die, and he does die. But then he is raised and returns to the city. Right? That was not good. That wasn't supposed to happen. That could be bad, but it's not. Jesus doesn't return to seek revenge or retribution. On that third day, which we will celebrate on Easter Sunday, he comes offering us evidence that he is loving, merciful, and ready to forgive, that he has come to make all things new. This is the God who looks like Jesus. And this love of God is available to us. If we'll stop playing the blame game, stop saying, I'm not my brother's keeper, as Cain did, and accept responsibility for who we are and for what we've become. It's not my dad's fault, my mom's fault. It's not my boss's fault. While those influences have certainly shaped us, we need to take responsibility for who we are and what we've become. Our, our churches, you know, we could blame it on our leaders for what problems that we've had. But we need to see what our part is in that. When we look at the landscape of American Christianity, Instead of thinking that we are somehow separate from it and not a part of it, we need to see what role we've played. We need to confess and we need to repent. If we will accept what Jesus has done for us, then we can discover that there is a better way, one that leads to real peace, freedom, and restoration, a way that leads to healing, and new life. Folks, that is what God wants us to see in the cross of Christ, that Jesus is the last scapegoat. We no longer need to play that game, for we see that it doesn't work. It has never worked. If we want peace, if we want real freedom, if we want real justice in the world, then it begins by looking inward on Good Friday and seeing how our own sins put Jesus on the cross. But hallelujah, praise God, that he has brought that way of justice, that broken system, that way of guilt and shame and transference of sin onto someone else, he's brought it to an end. He has canceled our debt 
and he has shown us a new way to live. Now, folks, when you see this power, this meaning, and this mystery of the cross of Christ, that it is in the cross of Jesus that we see, paradoxically, the clearest revelation of who God is by taking all of that on himself and forgiving us. Church, it'll change your life, and it'll change how you treat others. That is the invitation this Good Friday, that we would accept the last scapegoat so we would no longer do this. We would no longer play that game, but instead live a new life, be a new person, be a new community on the earth. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the deep meaning that is in the cross, and specifically this aspect of Jesus' escape code. Help us to apply it to our lives and to be the kind of people you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray.